Why are all the smart Catholic kids becoming integralists? And should Christians be liberals instead? My name is Matthew Lee Anderson, and you are listening to one more episode of Mere Fidelity, the podcast where we think together about the Word of God and the world we live in. Our thanks to our friends at InterVarsity Press for sponsoring this episode of Mere Fidelity. If you have not listened to our podcast, our last episode with Fred Sanders on Knowing God, strong recommendation. We talked about Knowing God and Evangelical Piety in honor of the 50th anniversary edition of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. You can get 50% off on that at IVP. Uh, you can just use the code IVPNOW. 50 at ivpress.com and you can get i said 50 percent off but it's 25 percent off 50 percent would be amazing 25 percent off the 50th anniversary edition i gotta get all my numbers straight great book it's a classic alistair i want you to know i've not yet started reading it but i've made reading it by the end of the year a goal so the, the remedial education of Matthew Lee Anderson continues. That's why we do the podcast, to bring me up to a baseline level of basic knowledge about the Christian faith. We also do the podcast to take up hot and hard questions that we are interested in. Very delighted to have a guest with us today, Dr. Kevin Vallier. Kevin is... Uh, the Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University. He is the author of several books. He is one of the best political philosophers that I know. Uh, but I don't know many political philosophers, Kevin, so you can, you can sure, sort of yeah. take that with a grain of salt. He is the author, most recently, of All the Kingdoms of the World on radical alternatives, excuse me, radical religious alternatives, to liberalism. So not just alternatives, but religious alternatives. All the kingdoms of this world, of the world, Oxford University Press. This is the book on integralism and how to think about integralism as a liberal. All the cool kids are reading this book, including, I think, the cool kids who are integralists. So Kevin, congrats on the book. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, thank you on both counts. Um, it's It's been a it's a, this book is, you know, on some unusual issues, and I'm really surprised that it's done as well as it has. Um, so it's been a lot of fun, and even though it's all rather strange, as we'll see. Yeah. So we actually, if, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, since 2020, I think, then you are familiar with integralism, because we did a show with Father Pater Edmund. You did. Uh, we How did. I didn't know that. Yeah, wow. you missed it. We didn't show up in the book, Kevin. That's weird. Um, yeah, we did. We did an episode with him, and it was a great conversation. And we we went at it, and I think I was not persuaded by him at the end of the day, in part because I I'm not Catholic. But um, so if you are interested in integralism and hearing from an integralist directly, I think we can say that we we we've done justice to that side of the movement by having someone who is at the fountainhead on the show. Kevin, you are critical of the integralists, but you tell a really generous and sensitive story. I would, one of the things I love about the book is your history of how this came to be such a prominent movement within smart Catholic circles. Would you just recap 
that history very quickly for our audience. Why are the cool, smart kids interested in integralism? I mean, for people who don't know, oftentimes people are kind of cagey who even hold a position about how to, how to define it. And I define it not just how people currently do, but in historical terms with the sort of the most prominent intellectuals that have held the view over uh, centuries. So think about it, the view like this. Um, God engages in two acts of authorization of human institutions. The first, God authorizes the state to promote the common good of its members. That's not controversial among Christians. Um, second, God authorizes the church uh, to preach the gospel and to advance the ultimate or eternal or uh, good of uh, its members, including its temporal good, but chiefly it's the, the eternal good. So Christians can accept all of that, too. I do. It, since it's Catholic integralism, of course, it's the Catholic Church, you know, with a particular ecclesiastical structure. But whatever. And if you're a Christian listening to this podcast, just imagine, you know, the church and structured in some other way. Presbyterians uh, really want their own integralist state these days. Actually, interestingly enough, when Hobbes attacked integralism, he attacked the Presbyterian version in the English edition, but he took it out in the Latin um, because he wanted the Dutch to like the book. Uh, when it was published in the Netherlands. Yeah, so so actually, they've been lumped together for like 400 years. Um, so, sorry. Um, but then the third issue is, the third condition is where things get complex. So, um, what is the relationship between these two divinely authorized institutions? Well, uh, integralist reason the following way. Uh, look, the end of the church is nobler. Sometimes what the state does can bear on the church's mission. And that means that the church should be able to authorize Christian states uh, to help it in its spiritual mission. So God authorizes the, the state directly, okay, on this view. It has its own divinely given limits. But when it comes to spiritual matters, say, for instance, the proliferation of heretical material, the church can direct the state to serve as what was called its secular arm. And so it has a kind of indirect sovereignty, or what, what Cardinal Robert Mellerman called the indirect power of the Pope. Okay. So in broad outline, that's integralism. There's the authorization of church and state and the partial subordination of the state to the church. Okay, that's the view as I understand it. Okay, so what <laughs> what a weird view. Like, why are, what's going on? Uh, this this stop, I mean, the Pope was a prisoner in the Vatican in the late 19th century. Like, what are we even talking about <laughs> this for? So that's where our, our, our story comes in. Um, so interestingly, kind of the interest in integralism sort of rises and falls. And there was a big interest uh, in it in the late 19th century and also uh, in the lead up and, and unfortunately in fascist regimes in the mid 20th to later 20th century. But the reason this view, which was common, died is because the Second Vatican Council in 1965 published this document, Dignitatis Humanae. Um, which is, you know, the church's declaration on religious freedom. And in it, it looks like the church was just taking a total about face from anything remotely integralist, because it just says that uh, the human person has a right to religious freedom. Um, and that's based on the dignity of the person as revealed by reason and revelation. Um, and so that was taken to just settle the matter, not as de fide dogma necessarily, but pretty high level stuff. So integralism fell into obscurity, total obscurity. It was really the um, the, the Lefebvreists, Archbishop Lefebvre and um, Society of St. Pius X that kept it alive. Um, but, you know, they were considered by many schismatics. Um, and so it was seen as totally unserious. But there was a problem, which is that the church had often been in, seemed to like integralism or before integralism or try to act in integralist kind of ways in the past. 
And Dignitatis Humanae looked like there was discontinuity. Like, it looks like the church had just done it in about phase. So, I mean, if there's any case where the Catholic Church has con- contradicted itself in terms of its dogma, this is pretty close to one. Um, between, say, Leo XIII's seemingly integralist teaching in 1885 down to Dignitatis Humanae in 1965. So that's 80 years, and it looks like you have a total about face on religious liberty. We can talk more about that, but the, the point is just to establish that there was a total disappearance of this view. Okay? I mean, Bellarmine was, was beatified and made a doctor of the church in 1930, 1931, and this was his view. But after 1965, boom, dead, gone. And it became associated with people who opposed the church. Well, it turns out that in the UK, um, in particular early 2000s, there have been conversations between some um, British Catholic philosophers and theologians that were traditionalists, also another uh, a number of French traditionalists, some of whom were SSPX, Society of St. Pius X, but, but some of whom were not. And they started thinking in the kind of following way. Well, we're Catholic traditionalists, but we do s- seem to be pretty oppositional to the hierarchy. Um, but we're supposed to be pious and obedient. But the problem is it looks like the hierarchy has embraced liberalism and so on. It's gone totally off the rails. So, I mean, we have to oppose that. So there was this desire among a number of particular British Catholics, uh, thinkers, to say, well, we want to be pious um, and be obedient to the church, but we also think this liberalism thing is a hideous doctrine. Um, so how do we square that circle if the church looks liberal? Yeah. Um, and so what this did was it created an incentive, right, that there had to be a reconciliation. There had to be some kind of continuity between Dignitatis Humanae and yet what the church did in the past in a way that allowed for for Catholics to be both totally opposed to liberalism and totally obedient to the church. So, and to be clear, what, yeah. just just for listeners, when you say yeah. totally opposed to liberalism, you're talking political liberalism. Yes, not right? the, not I mean, theological kind of, liberalism. It wouldn't be very clear. Um, but yeah, on political liberalism, abs- uh, yeah, absolutely. Although we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. So the point is, integralism was dead, except among people that were totally defiant. Um, and there were people who didn't want to be defiant, but were totally opposed to liberalism. Um, so this philosopher, Thomas Pink, who you know I think very highly of, he's a highly regarded uh, philosophical historian, a theorist of the will, uh, uh, has written a great deal on and edited uh, Francisco Suarez's works, uh, Thomas Pink, who developed a new interpretation of Dignitatis Humanae that indeed squared the circle. Um, very few people adopted it. But what it did is it opened up space, not just intellectually, but in terms of like intellectual movements for people to say, oh, if I take the pink interpretation, I can do what I want to do, which is I can be against liberalism completely and I can still be obedient. And one of the very first people to ever see that, if not the very first person to see that, was Potter Edmund. So Alan Finister had organized a talk and he's an integralist uh, theologian. Uh, had organized a talk in Trumont, Austria, where Pink presented his um, his interpretation of Dignitatis Humanae. And for uh, Pater Edmund, that that was like, oh, uh, hallelujah. You know, I never thought I could have all of these things that were, were good simultaneously, praise God. And, you know, he's got a bunch of different friends at Thomas Aquinas College. He's, he knows a lot of sort of like Ivy League Catholic traditionalists on the left and right. And they start this Facebook group in 2013 that eventually merged becomes a Slack conversation. They're bringing in new people. They're talking to people on Twitter. You know, the, the sort of famous Twitterati integralists get integrated later. Um, 
But what happens is it turns out that Pater Edmund was not the only traditional Roman Catholic who wanted to simultaneously oppose every form of liberalism, but also believe that they were good sons and daughters of the church. And so what happens with a lot of particularly younger people, particularly those who grew up when a Burgerfeld was just a reality, right? So same-sex marriage is just a reality in the United States, particularly these smart kids who are at ultra-progressive institutions, including ultra-progressive Catholic institutions. They're feeling totally alienated. They feel that it's not it's not Pope John Paul II's day anymore in this country. You know, it's not there's going to be some kind of reconciliation between Catholicism and liberal democracy. No, liberal democracy is going to send Catholicism back into the shadows. Maybe the whole project was poison all along. We have to oppose liberalism, but we also have to be obedient sons and daughters of the church because why else? <laughs> we care about Jesus. We care about the church, you know. Um, and it just turned out, surprisingly, that there were probably, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of young Catholics and that were reflective that this was something they wanted. So the, the culture produced the interest, but then Pink supplied the rationale that began to be developed over and over again. So there was this really fascinating meeting between someone who supplied the reconciliation and the thousands of people who were in demand of it. It was a true act of intellectual entrepreneurship that, you know, you made a weird product. Oh, wait, everyone wants to buy it. It's like Pink's interpretation is like a beanie baby, you know? I mean, it just completely took things by storm. Right? Could you speak a, a bit to the question of whether integralism is a sort of prudential position? Is it something that's saying that this sort of political order is required by divine law? And also the opposition. So, for instance, I grew up in the Republic of Ireland and in the Constitution, it reads, in the name of the Most Holy Trinity, from whom is all authority and to whom is our final end, all actions, both of men and states, must be referred. We, the people of error, humbly acknowledging our obligations to our divine Lord, Jesus Christ, who sustained our fathers through centuries of trial, etc. And it goes on to talk about the importance of the state acknowledging the homage of public worship is due to Almighty God etc. Is there a matter here of a prudential application of a more integralist order? Is this something that is ruled out by divine law? You should not have that sort of society. I'm trying to understand exactly where both the integralist position and the opposition stand relative to the question of prudence or divine law on the political order that they're promoting. This is a very rich question, and I have to condense my response because I can I'm gonna. I, I could literally answer that question for an hour and not stop. So I'm. I, I have to be careful here. Integralism is not dogma, and no integralist claims that it is. They do claim that often that particularly Pius IX's Quanta Cura and its associated document, the Syllabus of Errors, rules out political liberalism for Roman Catholics. So they think no to liberalism politically, economically, and certainly theologically. Um, and then there's this like weird kind of response, which is like, if liberalism is false, then, well, we, we should like go to the wall against it completely. <laughs> and I think so many integralists that I've talked to sort of think, okay, look, the church is ruled out liberalism. It's a heresy. It's a sin or whatever. Um, and so we have to be as against it, um, as we can. And so I think one thing that you see among integralists is not so much like integralism is dogma, but rather that anti-liberalism is dogma. 
And what's the best and most beautiful way to oppose liberalism? Well, look at the historical church practice. Look at its kind of coherence and elegance of the way the two powers are related. Um, and so it's romantic, I think, in a way that when they're trying to think of, OK, well, if liberalism is a heresy, is a sin um, and we're so steeped in sin, what's the kind of noble sort of hopeful inspiring pure anti-liberal alternative so i think there's there's a there's a romantic element to this that is not really a matter of prudence at all many integrals will say oh yeah we can't go to integralism now in fact all the british integrals father cream um helen Bimister, uh tom pink that i've talked to just say look no we need a massive catholic revival before we can do this the thing that makes the american integrals weird is they go to it now um so for, for, for many of the British integrals, it's just about, look, what is the ideal? Like what is the, what, what would be the best and noblest inspiring ideal? Um, there's some other elements too, but that's kind of the integralist side. It's not, it's, not, it's not entailed or necessary for divine law exactly, but it's the best way to institutionalize the truth, the full truth of the Catholic religion. So anyway, not, a, not an entailment, but... A, it's sort of abductive arguments, an inference of the best explanation. What would be the best way to square with all of this dogma, all of this historical experience? Well, integralism is the way to go. Um, okay, so that's the integral side. Now, um, there are people that are neither integralists nor liberals, which I think is actually most uh, Catholic theologians over the last hundred years. Um, so there is a gigantic space between these views. And I think that the church is actually very nuanced in how it was trying to learn from the liberal tradition without capitulating to it. Um, and for whatever reason on the internet, like those people were just like not, their voices don't get amplified. I don't know why. It's like they're yelling. Who who would be some you of know, the same? I, I don't understand. Who, just really quickly, who are a couple of the names? Um, Robbie George. Yeah. But I mean, John Finnis, it's been, he, he, take, he, does, he takes it, so, he thinks it's so unserious that he doesn't even really want to respond uh, to it. Uh, Father Ronheimer did a debate with Pink, um, but I think people kind of expected Ronheimer to to win that decisively. And if you watch the debate on YouTube, it, that's not clear at all. Um, and there's been a whole bunch of articles that like public discourse in various places that are like shorter or what have you. Um, and they just didn't really pick up or take off. So it's sort of odd that like the mainline conservative approach to these issues is like basically forgotten and not addressed. So it, it's, it, it's very strange. Um, I think a lot of kids are growing up who are become integralists before they've even read Dignitatis Humanae. So there, just to say, there's a huge vast middle ground between integralism and, uh, and liberalism. And for whatever reason, this, this dominant mode of reasoning is, is falling by the wayside. I think part of the reason is it's something that conservative and progressive Catholics agree has been settled. And the progressive and conservative Catholics want to argue about other stuff. So I think a lot of it's just like Robbie George and Father James Martin, like they don't care to argue about religious liberty. They don't disagree about Dignitatis Humanae. They disagree about a huge range of other things. But they're much more interested in questions about abortion, LGBT issues, and so on. So that's another reason. I think they're just the mainline Catholic progressives and, and conservatives are just interested in other stuff. Um, but they don't realize how many young people are interested. Um, so because of how much people want to be not liberal, to the point where Robbie George looks like a normie liberal to all of them, which is pretty interesting. If you, I mean, if you went back 20 years ago in sort of moral philosophy – 
the notion that Robbie George was a normie liberal yeah. would be absolutely hysterical. Yeah, no, I, I know, I know, <laughs> like, I know. It's just one of the funniest ideas he got I think I've ever encountered. He got out flight. You know, um, <laughs> I was talking to a canon lawyer at Notre Dame, Father Father John Kimes, who teaches canon law. And he's like, yeah, I've been totally outflanked to my right over the last 10 years um, with his Catholic law students. So as far as liberal arguments against it, I mean – I don't defend liberalism in the book. Um, I barely talk about it, in part because I've, I've done a lot of talking about liberalism. And I didn't <laughs> want to keep doing it. But also, just so people know, the book that I wrote was an internal critique of integralism. So I don't bring it, at least I try not to bring any liberal premises to bear or take anything liberal for granted in any of my critical arguments, the three main critical arguments I give. I try to grant integralists almost everything that I can, even ridiculous things that no one should ever grant them. That's kind of the structure of, uh, of the book. But yeah, most of the opposition is, it's not like there's these principled liberals that all these Catholic kids are listening to or anything like that. They, they, I mean, their leaders can barely use the term liberalism to refer to anything. Could you say a bit more about some of the ways the term liberalism is being used and the, maybe a bit of the equivocation in the use of that term? Because it seems to me for yeah. some... It's really naming a set of virtues of liberality, of hospitality, yeah. of inclusion, of these sorts of things, which are virtues that can be within a, broadly speaking, more conservative society as well, or conservative political vision. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are those who are thinking in terms of the very substantive vision of progressive liberalism with a certain view on sexuality, a certain view on the good of the human being. For others, it's a more negative thing, more proceduralist approach. Or, and there, there are all these different families, let's say Rawlsian liberalism or these other specific visions within that larger camp. And I wonder to what extent are people shadow boxing over these issues because of the equivocations and the essentially contested character of that term, liberalism itself. What are some of the things within a liberal vision that, I mean, as Christians, we should be upholding, even though they may be labeled as liberal? And what are some of the things that maybe we should distinguish from that as specific subspecies that we can oppose without throwing everything out? You've just asked the question that, will, that is going to produce, hopefully, my next book. <laughs> So because this was the negative political theology, like here's a coherent view that people are interested in and here's why it's incorrect. But now it's time to say what the upshot is. Um, and so, again, I have to condense what I want to say. Um, so the first thing to say is that the post-liberals, integralists among them, do want to try to use the term liberalism, not so much to refer to progressive secularism, but at least that that is whatever liberalism is, that's where it ends up. So it's some kind they say it's some kind of like, you know, like the primacy of autonomy, the non-existence of human nature, non-existence of final ends or something like that, such that you can see it going on before progressivism. But it's they structure their concept of liberalism so that it's most consistent development. It's apotheosis is woke. Okay, because they know they oppose the woke more than whether they oppose, say, the uh, British liberal Hegelian uh, political thought of Thomas Hill Green, who was spectacularly influential in the UK, 
150 years ago, his students basically moved um, from the Liberal Party to the Labor Party, making the Labor Party the major left party. Um, they were massively, massively influential. And to this day, you can't get uh, a, a beer at a pub at any time at night uh, in Oxford, in part because of he was a pro, Green was a prohibitionist um, and taught at Oxford. So, so for instance, this is a person who's utterly forgotten, who nothing they say about is true because they don't, they don't even know he was for positive liberty. He thought you'd have liberalism based on the common good. Um, uh, you know, he thought liberalism had been too individualistic. Um, and the, you have a hundred years of liberalism basically saying, look, we've been too focused on individual autonomy, but we don't want to go in the collectivist direction. Like how do we balance these things? Um, so, the, you know, basically between John Stuart Mill and John Rawls, there's just a spectacular number of things going on. You have to omit huge swaths of liberal history to try to make this plausible. And so the way they kind of you, but the way they use the term is the way I think they want to use it, because there's this thing they're against. And then when I show everyone else like, OK, well, you know, woke at Harvard, like that's also the American Enterprise Institute's fault. So that's what they call right and left liberalism. And so it all has to end up in the same place. And so they can describe it all with one big term. So that's what I think the post liberals are doing with the term. Not the kind of more careful, nicer uh, British post-liberals that were using that term before the integralists. I mean, uh, the integralists. Okay, so that's how I think they're using the term. It, um, it's to refer to whatever this woke apotheosis is, um, but in you know in, in 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 simpler and earlier forms. Now, how should we use the term um, as political liberals? Well, um, the way I think about it is this: I, I have a totally different approach. Um, it's a family resemblance concept that refers to the thought of various figures that are developing the ideas of different movements, um, uh, social movements for things like freedom, equality, and, and toleration. Um, and I see, broadly speaking, the liberal tradition as sort of cropping up starting around 300 years ago, primarily in Anglophone countries. And they kind of have four principles that can be interpreted in many different ways. But if you hold all the principles, you're almost certainly a liberal. And if you hold and if you don't hold them, you almost certainly are not. So the first is a principle of individual or group freedom from interference by government um, and from one another. Um, it's not so much to say that this is like a value to be worshipped. It might just be like a, a right a limitation on what government may do for any number of reasons. Um, but it can also include positive liberty. That is the freedom that comes from reason, the freedom that comes from virtue. There are plenty of liberals who are for positive freedom, too. Um, this is totally forgotten. Um, even though liberals in the academy have been defending positive liberty against libertarians for decades in the journals, too, so also totally forgotten. So then there's the idea of equality, which we all know is very contested among liberals. You get classical liberals who think, look, it's just equal opportunity, equal treatment for the law. Progressive liberals or socialists will say, no, we got to have a lot more egalitarianism, a lot more redistribution. Whatever it is, equality is the thing. It matters. Then uh, a principle of toleration. All right. So this is you know, obviously one of liberalism's distinctives. It's to, you have a certain virtue of putting up with things that you think are really super problematic. Um, and that's supposed to include religion, um, but it's also increasingly thought to include you know, non-religious doctrines as well. So uh, that's the third. So we got freedom, equality, uh, to toleration, but also there's a fourth principle in the book. I call it the uh, harmony of interest principle, but you could also understand this kind of mutual advantage that liberals have tended to be the folks saying that society and political society is necessarily a war. That is a conflict between classes or races or 
groups or something to that effect. It's kind of the win-win ideology um, that sort of tries to say, look, we can structure society so that it's a cooperative venture for mutual benefit. Um, so that's something you see, you know, across the spectrum. Some classical liberals say, oh, we do that best in the market. Progressive liberals say, oh, we do that best in democratic deliberation. But whatever it is, there's this kind of idea of reconciliation of different interests that is much less prominent in the uh, conservative tradition, even though it's there, and is um, kind of antithetical to socialism in a variety of ways. And those are, you know, conservatism and socialism, I see as the two great competitors to liberalism, for various hybrids of these, of course. So anyway, so that's what I think the liberal tradition is. It's, it's, it's the series of systems of thought and movement, uh, movements that uh, stress uh, the ideas of freedom, equality, toleration, and uh, mutual advantage. Um, so using that term, term, it's just totally different than what they're talking about, even though they're not unrecognizably different versions of the term. Um, yes, go ahead. I was just going to ask uh, a question about your arguments about integralism. And I, I have to admit. That, oh, yeah, yeah. We should get there. Yeah. I, I have to admit that I am one of those people who does say integralism just because I'm from California or something like that. I actually kind of want to. So you, you love these three these three major arguments against it. I kind of I kind of just want to know which one's your favorite and why. Like, which one do you think is the most devastating, like collapse integralism from within itself kind of argument? My my initial pull is towards really you guys are going to just like the, the transition argument of of it's just so utterly unworkable and unthinkable in a sense, given where we are. But I'm just I'm kind of curious yeah. what you think is mm -hmm. is the most important problem with it, and why? Yeah, yeah. So um, briefly, I after kind of steelmanning the integralist position, I give three counter arguments. They're called the transition argument, the stability argument, and the justice argument. The transition argument says that um, well, my slogan for the three of them it's it's super cheesy, but it, that for integralism you can't get there. You can't stay there, and it's unfair. So the transition argument is the argument that you can't get there. That is, you can't get from any society that's remotely like our own um, to an integralist regime that presumably have some close relationship with the modern state, um, because doing so is what I call morally infeasible. You can get there, but you have to violate Catholic moral teaching in massive ways, um, because you have to hurt a lot of people to get such a radical ideology to capture a modern state. Um, it's also the case that integralists are going to have to convince like 5,600 Catholic bishops, none of whom are with them, to change their minds, to get the church to go back on this. Um, and they've made no real serious efforts in this direction uh, that seem to have met with any success. Um, so there's this problem of changing the church, but there's this really severe moral problems with changing, changing this, the state. The second argument that you can't say there bit is to say, look, well, imagine we could get to integralism. Um, it's supposed to be, as a natural law view, a kind of stable equilibrium. It's supposed to sort of speak to human nature, promote social cohesion and harmony. Um, it, is it plausible that those things are true? I say no, not even under the social theological conditions integralists accept. And the final argument, the justice argument, says it's unfair. That is, integralism is unfair, and partly because of the surprising uh, feature that they would apply more coercion to Catholics than to non-Catholics in their ideal. Um, but then I think ultimately um, that coercion is unjust on natural law grounds, natural law grounds that I think they have to, integrals have to accept. So transition argument, you can't get there. 
stability argument, you can't stay there. Justice argument, it's unfair. That's the slogan. Okay, so which of these three arguments are the best? For anyone who's inclined towards political conservatism, the transition argument is decisive. Because once you actually map out what it would take to get there, or what our best social science suggests about being able to get there, and I spend a lot of time you know, looking at sort of like complexity theories, theories of social norms, all these different elements of uh, theories of social change, um, theories of soft power, the, the uh, models of how ideological groups take over states. I, I just go through a huge range of, of difficulties. And I think that should dissuade people that are, are thinking that this is, you know, at all realistic um, or even like remotely worth taking seriously as a, as a political ideal. Um, but I think there's two sorts that are interested in these debates among Christians. One of those who incline to political conservatism, like they're genuinely conservative. So why didn't I just end with that argument? Because there's another type of person attracted to integralism. And this is what I call the counter-revolutionaries. So for them, you know, conservatives are kind of weak and un unmasculated against, you know, unmasculine related to the left. The conservatives just end up ratifying whatever liberal piety produces, but at a 30-year delay. And so these are the folks reading, say, Maestra instead of Burke, and are thinking, look, we need to not just push the woke back. We need to conquer and destroy them forever. Otherwise, um, they're just going to keep corrupting things. Um, and those folks, I think, have a kind of more like kind of reactionary, romantic view of the world. And so they're much more inclined to the practice of what's often called ideal theory um, or the formation of, you know, a kind of realistic utopia. And what they care about is not so much getting to it exactly. It's more about kind of being inspired, right, of saying, well, what's the very best regime? And we'll do whatever we can to get there, um, even if we can't get there now. But we'll still hold to it. Like that would be weird for a conservative to say, yeah, this totally unrealistic ideal. Um, it's totally infeasible. We have no idea how it would work, but it's it's still the thing we should go for. I mean, it's just not. So for the non-conservative, the younger radical, um, uh, I actually think even though it's the most complex of the arguments, that the stability argument is going to be the most uh, powerful if it's properly understood um, because it it doesn't even sniff like it's presupposing anything liberal. The justice argument supposes that um, religious coercion of the unbaptized is unjust, or is unjust, as integralists must admit, according to what I think is Catholic dogma. Um, but I use that to show that, well, look, religious coercion of the baptized is also unjust. Um, but they also think that dogma says that religious coercion of the baptized is just. Um, and I think there's an inconsistency between those judgments that I try to push it, but many of the integrals are just like, they're just, they're just totally dismissive of, of this in part, because I think their moral intuitions are so uh, anti-liberal that even Dignitatis Humanae is like, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing. Um, <laughs> even if it's only applied as they would, uh, to the unbaptized. So the justice argument, I think can get a lot of people that kind of are willing to take everything the church says seriously on religious liberty as a whole, uh, and wants to see how they all fit together. What I found in discussions is a lot of the romantic intervals don't really want to do that. They're not interested in sort of taking all these commitments and squaring it. What they're really interested in is order, like order, 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 post-liberal order, post-liberal order. Can we have a society ordered to the good, that's stable, that won't collapse, that isn't a dictatorship by the woke or whatever? So the stability argument is the most technical, but I think if they thought they, if they got to integralism, they couldn't stay there. 
then it wouldn't be this wonderful and glorious uh, land of milk and honey. Uh, that would be really deflating um, because the argument wouldn't be made on, on moral grounds. It would just be made on, look, here are all your theological commitments. Here's what they predict about your regime. So if, if they're careful with that argument, but it's also the most complex, um, but I, I like it the most because if it works, every, every integralism is done, right? The transition doesn't matter because if you can't stay at the idea, why would you go to it? Um, and none of the moral stuff matters either, because look, it's not an order. And if you have a natural law view of the world and you think a just society doesn't naturally order itself, right? Doesn't, is, doesn't produce stability and social cohesion. You've got the wrong ideal. Um, you know, so this isn't like socialist ideals where like, oh, human nature is so going to totally let, let me ask you, so, um, this is kind of, this is kind of provoked by your, your summary of the, the transition question. Uh, which is the 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 ludicrousness yeah. of convincing fifty six hundred Catholic uh, bishops? You said or cardinals? I I can't remember how many they have. Yeah, um, bishops. Bishops. Yeah. Uh, I guess there's there's this element of me like you wrote this very phenomenally well researched and ordered work, and um, I'm online too much, and so I know what inter integralism is. And all that. But there's a question of like. Why write a whole book arguing with what is arguably an extraordinarily fringe online phenomena that will not actually go anywhere uh, in terms of influencing or 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 or, or creating a, a social order? What is the value intrinsic? Like, what are you trying to, um, in a sense, what's the pastoral value? What's the what's the what's the moral? value that you were trying to, in a sense, advance in engaging this so thoroughly and so seriously, even, even by granting a whole bunch of things that are just ungrantable. So, so there's a bunch of reasons. The first is that Oxford invited me to do it um, because they follow the online stuff and they thought that a book on the topic by someone who took the idea seriously would, would be really valuable. Um, because they, they thought it would be, you know, kind of widely read given the energy. But my um, my editor, David McBride, is actually pretty interested in these issues for their own sake. Um, and so um, uh, part of it was just like the intrinsic value of examining the position and the potential pickup of, of the topic in terms of intellectual conversation. Um, so that's just like how it began. But that wasn't my only reason. Another one of my reasons was I've been planning to write in positive political theology for years already. And the integralism book came along, gave me a really good excuse to learn a lot more, uh, hit like church history, um, uh, theology and so on. So I think that my, and also enables me to articulate the view that I've long thought was like coherent, but like kind of the enemy. So it's like, you know, for Rawls utilitarianisms, this like high, like you, you, you respect it a great deal. And what you want to do is have an, an alternative to it even though you think it goes pretty wrong. So for me, it was like, okay, like here's like the really elegant, but totally false view. And so I thought I would sort of um, cut my teeth to some extent in doing, uh, in doing political theology um, to see if I could do it, to see if I enjoyed it. Um, but actually um, beyond that, the, here's some two further considerations that do become more, um, more pastoral. Uh, first, I am a kind of a conservative of American institutions. So I see myself as a kind of conservative classical liberal. I, I'm, you know, sort of boring fusionist in some ways. I think I have cooler reasons to be a fusionist, but I am, am a fusionist. Um, 
and I'll eventually hopefully give those cool reasons. Um, but um, so I like what the U.S. is doing. And I, I, what I dislike about the American internalists, I guess Pat Deneen's now with them, but Adrian Vermeule, uh, theologian Chad Pecknell, political theorists Gladden Pappen, um, and a number of others, is not that they're going to get to integralism. In fact, if they get too powerful, they're going to get themselves condemned pretty quickly. It's more that they are creating legions of followers who hate American institutions or distrust them. And the more I learn from the law, law students, and I'm going to be at Notre Dame Law in, in January, um, I'm hearing there's a huge amount of interest in this stuff from in the le- in, among American legal uh, uh, or American law students, but also at a lot of the Catholic philosophy and theology departments, undergraduates of like, say, Steubenville in particular is kind of their home base. I know from talking with some of Robbie George's students, who, or sorry, John Finnis's students who were teach at seminaries that a lot of priests are really interested and drawn to this view that are young. So part of the pastoral values, like someone has to take these ideas seriously, can't dismiss them, or they're just going to keep spreading. Um, and they're going to do a lot of damage pastorally. Imagine you've got an integralist priest now who's leading a parish. I mean, there are some ways in which that would be better from my perspective than a progressive priest, but there's also another sense in which it would be be also pretty bad, right? I mean, in terms of the way they form their parishioners in their attitude towards their society and their society's traditions and its values. Um, because the integralist has to think the American experiment is corrupt from top to bottom. Um, it, it, you know, it's not like the mainline conservative view is like, well, I got some things right that are really inspiring, but a lot, a lot of other things really wrong. Um, you know, there. so that's one pastoral issue that I think is really important, which is they're forming young people who are going to be lawyers, who are going to be priests, who are going to be philosophy professors, theology professors, and so on. Um, and so I wanted to try to combat that. Um, but also there's a deeper pastoral uh, reason that I actually am going to say publicly, but I, I may, I don't think I'll, well, I might get in trouble for this, but let me just be, be for real about this. One thing I've learned is that the influential integralists, you know, aren't the sort of the sort of geeky British theologians that want to revive the church and are concerned with church renewal. They're they're really nice people. Some of them are, you know, uh, deep, they're deeply misguided, but they're not they're not a problem. Like they're like they're they're just they're just really nice but very confused guys. It's the American integralists like Adrian Vermeule. And they're building a kind of following in the U.S. that is not what I would. I've talked to a ton of people about it now. I, I wouldn't call it a cult, um, but it is a set. So, you know, bringing people in to one of them in to give a talk, charging young people one hundred and fifty dollars or whatever to, to come uh, in some cases, not taking questions. Um, you know, all they do a huge amount of lobbying by like private messaging uh, people. They've converted some people that I know. Um, and, um, they're promising basically something to young people, which is essentially like piety on the one hand and power on the other, right? It's like, if you become an integralist, you are not only going to be like a good son and daughter of the church, but you're also going to be a foot soldier in the war against liberalism. And Hey, you know, maybe if you're a common good constitutionalist or whatever, you'll get a, you'll get a federal clerkship, um, or you'll get a position in the bureaucracy. And I think there's probably a couple of hundred kids who accept this, maybe a couple thousand. And if I, th- I actually think that I actually think 
that the jet set uh, are hurting, are going to really hurt some young people's lives. Um, they are badly misleading them, um, in part because they're high on their own supply. Um, so I have a great, I love talking to the British integralists. I love talking to like people like at Steubenville or whatever, but it's the main people. I think they're going to, I think some young people are going to uh, suffer as a result of being part of this. And if I can dissuade 10 of them from, from joining up with this, um, I didn't see this until I'd looked in this for years. I mean, even in 2019, I, I didn't understand what was going on behind the scenes. And so, um, but I just think, you know, if there's anyone out there listening, you know, I've been studying your view for a long time and I've been studying the people that lead the movement and there's a lot to be said for a lot of it. And I try to honor you and honor you the position, but you know, what like Vermeule and Deneen are up to politically is just, it's just not good. Um, and it just, um, there's plenty of bad American political movements. Other people are on that case, but I'm really worried. Um, so anyway, that's my second pastoral reason. I'm speaking as a um, British Protestant, and in a Protestant context, certainly within the context of the U.S., I see very similar things to what you're describing. So Christian nationalist movement would be an example of this in certain iterations. Um, but my question is more about a situation such as the U.K., where we have an established church, we have um, a head of state that's, um, that's crowned within a religious service. We have a lot of things that are an establishment of religion. It's not Catholicism, but it is an establishment of religion. And while our society is riddled with liberalism in many respects, there are um, realities at the heart that are deeply non-liberal and even anti-liberal. And it seems that in that case, the sort of conservative push of preserving the actual political establishment that you're within um, might push in the direction of a more integralist movement. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts about, for instance, someone within a context where there is a more established church order, where there is a religious um, character to politics, how they can relate to their polity um, in terms of the principles that you're outlining. Mm -hmm. outlining. Yeah, I'm going to be engaging in a debate about this with a, a British uh, integralist who's a Scruton student um, here in uh, in December, uh, uh, Sebastian Morello. Um, and um, so I've been thinking about this question quite a great deal as I read his kind of very British scrutinist defense of integralism, although oddly, I mean, he's British. And so like Catholicism wouldn't be the establishment that would be preserved. Um, <laughs> I mean, the British have been opposed to Catholic establishment for what, you know, a long time. Um, I should just throw into the mix, but I, I think the British system has been very long lasting. It's withstood a number of challenges of liberalism and it's still being battered in various ways, but it does seem to have the possibility of surviving. So I'm wondering whether that is also something would tell against the theory that this is not a stable um, situation. Right, right. Oh, no, I see where you're going with this. I, I thought the thought was like, well, what if you live in a particular country um, that has a certain establishment tradition? Um, you know, maybe that could help the integralist. And, and my broader point was just, like, well, I mean, obviously it's not the U.S., but I mean, it's Catholic integralism is going to be the U.K., and so, like, but when you go around even the different Catholic states, even Ireland, I mean, the integralist arrangements have been just functionally 
off the table. They're not part of an active constitutional order um, for many centuries, basically anywhere. Like everything that's quite, I mean, just there's a very few, few cases of that. It was just so if you're a conservative establishmentarian, um, you're just not, you're just not going to be an integralist. You might, you know, support Catholic establishment of the sort you see, say, in Poland, um, you know, or things that were more like what was going on in the 19th century. But so that was just all my point there. What, what you're asking, though, is a sort of broader, richer question I see, which is about what about softer forms of establishment? sort of fall short of integralism. Um, what would be the problem with those if you're a conservative liberal like me, and Christian like me? Um, and, um, you know, the difficult, so if you just start like with symbolic establishment, right? Just like what the state says, right? Um, I don't think that really harms my religious minorities or, or treats them unequally. So I, it's it's hard to me to really fulminate about in God we trust on coins or anything. It just doesn't seem to be that important. Um, with respect to hard establishment, right? When you use active coercion to promote your particular faith and to discourage others, that I think you know Anglicanism abandoned. You know, I don't know how how long ago, but it's grown softer and softer and softer with time. Even if initially it was extreme, right? I mean, the Church of England member for member burned more heretics than the Catholic Church did in a very small period of time, right? Um, with the first, his first century of being distinct. Um, so, so the coercive establishment stuff, then I'm just going to back up to liberal principles that I think aren't even really just liberal and just say, look, the freedom and equality of persons prevents you from, say, punishing heretics, punishing apostates, um, stuff like that. So I'm happy to just like, there are universal rational principles that rule out course of establishment. I think that. Symbolic establishment, I, I don't really have a great liberal argument against it. So the most interesting stuff is the soft establishment, right? The stuff like, you know, you tax people, but you publicly fund the church, you publicly build church, you know, churches, schools, promote certain, I don't know, textbooks, catechisms, or what have you, you have you know, an established ecclesiastical leader. Um, and, you know, maybe let's make it softer. Like, for instance, would you accept, say, like the German situation where if people disagreed, they could get a tax exemption? Or would you want to not have that? I mean, I would be happy with that sort of situation. Okay. So I think there are just many, there are many options out there that aren't hard establishment, but nor are they disestablishment. That's right. That's right. And if there's opting out, um, I think there are some still issues about like equal treatment of, of religion there, but the restrictions on religious freedom are, are very, very small. It really amount, if you can be exempted from the taxes, they're very small. So even though I think there is a universal right of religious freedom, and I think that is the teaching of the Catholic Church, um, and I do think Dignitatis Humanae was meant to rule out coercive establishment, but it says explicitly also that every state has a duty to profess the true religion. And so they all, it is not a liberal document in the sense it is against establishment. So the Catholic Church was trying to say, well, we got to be establishmentarians, but we don't want to do that. Um, so, and you're saying there's a lot of stable, soft establishmentarian positions. Um, and my only answer to you is yes. Um, it's also interesting to look in Christianity, though, about what their tendency is. In Islamic regimes, obviously, hard establishment was on the table, and it softened a bit in some places, but it hasn't softened all that much. And in some cases, it's been more severe 
um, than it was in the past, like Iran. Um, and I think we all kind of sense, even the establishmentarians, like we don't want anything to do with that. Um, so what's the tendency of the self-establishment regime as an order, so, as a kind of Christian order? Does it tend towards liberalism? Does it tend toward hard establishment? Or does it, can it just keep itself kind of moving forward? How would we look at that in terms of the way we wanted to model the different social dynamics of the regimes? There's just so many models that it's really hard for me to say anything. I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that you can analyze political ideals by making them like overly formal, but then using that to sort of illustrate dynamics that are there. Like that's why I'm doing that in chapter five is I'm saying, look, I'm going to make this pretty formal, but we're going to learn when we make things specific, what the, the more vague problems might be. But we take them seriously because they hold up under a lot of scrutiny and specificity. Um, and so that's why I took Catholic integralism in particular as, as, as a certain kind of model. But if you have me look at, okay, well, like, let's look at like soft Confucian establishmentarianism in China in the 19th century, right? Or like all the state legislators have to know, or state officials, they have to know Confucius, the sort of main Confucian classics, and they're tested on them to get, to be, be in power or what have you. Or, you know, you have the kinds of establishment that you have in, I don't know, the Netherlands in the 19th century or, you know, something like that. Um, my biggest worry actually is this, the, and the Protestant regimes sometimes did this, but the Catholic regimes are much worse at this. In the Anglo context, it's just, the, I worry about treatment of Jews um, and other religious minorities, but especially Jews. I like to think that Christians have kind of matured enough that if we had self-establishment that we would treat Jews as equals, but we just have like a really, really, really bad record. Um, and so I think the non-established regimes, unless they're violently disestablished, in which case they're also terrible for Jews because they're terrible for everybody. Um, but so, yeah, I don't have a sort of good stability argument against any, like every soft establishment regime. Um, I was only concerned to really get at the hard establishment. Um, and I don't also think I'd have a good argument if the soft establishment regimes like tended to collapse into hard establishment, which is what a lot of leftists think will happen. Like you have a little bit, you'll get more. That's not actually what you see. I mean, in the Islamic countries, it's often the case where it's like there's like a UN, U.S. intervention that supports the Shah. And then like it's, it's a way more complicated story about how you get theocratic Iran than just like, oh, it was soft and establishment and then it became a hard establishment. It's totally not what happened. Um, so if you could show that soft establishmentarian Christian regimes tended towards hard establishment, like for good reasons, that would be a really good argument against them. Um, but I'll have an argument, I don't have an argument to that effect. I think if anything, soft tends to decay into symbolic. Well, it's good to know then that there's room for the, the church of England and that, uh, Oliver O'Donovan was right about everything, Kevin. Uh, I mean, know, I'm not after listeners this. of this podcast will know that we are, uh, many of us fans of Oliver O'Donovan. So I'm glad to know that you agree with him on everything. That's my big takeaway from this well, podcast. Uh, well, what I would say is this. Um, um, <laughs> okay, but say it briefly, Kevin, because we are at the end of time. So I uh, want to make sure are, that we... Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, no, we're, can, we, can, we do can, have to wrap up. Yeah, I can stop. I mean, the, the, the I guess the main thing I'd, I'd say here is that I want us to be able to broaden our thinking as a matter of political theology. I mean, I agree with this to beyond kind of traditional liberal horizons. Yeah. Um, and so I don't want to just come in and be like all establishment bad because it's a conversation that I want to have and I want to think more deeply about for a long time. 
So I, it, what I'm really concerned is with the hard establishment. I don't want Christians to go in that direction. Okay. Yeah. So, I think we, so yeah. we all agree with that. That's a great yeah. word. Kevin, this has been, <laughs> as I expected, a very substantive, very thorough conversation. Uh, this has been a delight to have you on the show. We'll have oh, to do this again. I, I really so. appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Uh, for those who have been listening, he is Kevin Vallier. The book is All the Kingdoms of the World on Radical Religious Alternatives to Liberalism, available everywhere from Oxford University Press. It's a terrific book. Do pick it up. We are going to do a plus one with Kevin. So we are going to ask him one more question. So oh. if you want to hear that, you can join the merry band of patron supporters through merefidelity.com. You can send us a note if you want to follow up with us with show ideas, guest ideas. We love to hear from you. So do send us a note at merefidelity.com. We are going to be back in the weeks to come. I think we might be talking about another book uh, on our next show by some degenerate rogue who's entirely uninteresting, uh, me. So that might, that might be coming. I don't know for sure. It might or might not happen, but we do hope you'll join us. Uh, this has been Mere Fidelity, the podcast where we think together about the word of God and the world we live in. We will talk with you next time.